there is victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over sin and death and hell and the grave. And victory over the power of sin in life. What God has given us in order to overcome sin in life, and overcome the power that's there. We still live in a fallen world. We still have a hangover from the fall as as I have said before, we live in unredeemed flesh. Redemption is not complete. And what God has provided for us to help us in that process to overcome progressively, overcome the power of sin in our life is, is His indwelling Holy Spirit and, and His Word. Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. And Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen, sanctify them, praying to the Father for you and for the disciples, sanctify them. Your word is truth. And so the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. It's what the Spirit wields to slay sin in our lives, to renew our minds, to help us, and we have a part of that process. We pursue God. We place ourselves under the word. We submit to, to the text. We let it reign, and we correct ourselves whenever the Bible speaks because it is the voice of God to the extent that it is rightly Divided, And we are right in the middle of three of a four-part series uh, on marriage in the light of discipleship that began in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through, through 12. And we're trying to understand God's teachings on the topic. Now, there's two ways that you could approach this, and you already obviously know the way that I've approached it. One is just to preach Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And let it say exactly what it says, which is what we did in the very first sermon. And then leave the rest of you to, to sit there and say, and well, what about this passage? And what about that passage? And what about this? And what did they mean by that? So the other way to preach it is just blow the whole thing out and go through um, what we're trying to do for uh, sermons uh, on you know on the topic and look from Genesis all the way through. So today we're going to be... In Matthew 19, so if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to end up. We're going to do what we did last week and look at the Old Testament and see this understanding of progressive revelation and will build us up to this passage where Jesus talks about the certificate of divorcement and what will keep you from becoming an, an adulterer if, if divorce takes place in, in your life. I say it's difficult to do it in, in four sermons because it's, there have been volumes written on the, on the topic. And I've done hours and hours of study just preparing for you um, and ultimately for the Lord to get it right. Um, how do you take all the passages in the Bible and figure out how to apply them in a gracious and clear way acknowledging that, that there are people hurting by the topic, there are people in the midst of the topic, people confused about the topic, varying opinions on the topic. How do you take something that God clearly designed in creation without divorce and answer the question, so why is it mentioned in Scripture? What does Jesus mean when he says, except for immorality, in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19? Why does Luke and Mark not say, except for immorality? 
what if this happened or what if that happened? What if it was before salvation? What if it was after salvation? What if my spouse left me and then returned? I mean, you could just go on and on and on. And beyond all of those questions, the deepest desire of my heart, and I'm sure your heart, is to honor the Lord. Is You want to be pleasing to Him. And so whatever it says, like it or not, that, that's where I want to be. And I'm sure that's where you want to be. But it's a, it's a challenge. It's, a, it's difficult. And that's the journey that Jesus is taking his, his disciples on. Through a series of real-life object lessons, he shows the disciples the demands of discipleship. He's in this year of preparing them. For the cross. Public ministry is over. It's private ministry. It's instructing the disciples. What does it mean to follow me? What are the demands of discipleship? And he applies that specifically to marriage, to children, to possessions, and then riches in, in Mark chapter 10. And he begins by teaching a hermeneutics class to the Pharisees while teaching his followers how they should view marriage. And, and you remember in Mark 10, the Pharisees had built a divorce culture on a regulation from the law in Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus takes them back to God's design and creation. Gives God's view of the sanctity of marriage. And and the Bible couldn't be clearer on how God views marriage. So this is not the the difficult part. Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. That's just as a side note. That's why you must oppose homosexual unions or anything else, polygamous unions or what the Mormons do, or that's because of this passage, among other things. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. It's something that God created. And the marriage bed is, is undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So God says honor marriage, and the people that violate that will be judged. So it's pretty straightforward. There's, there's no way to get confused in Hebrews 13:4. Marriage is honorable and that union is the is at the center of it between one man and one woman who are now one flesh to be that's to be uncontaminated by anyone else. And those who break that will face the judgment if, without repentance. And if that's not clear enough, Matthew or Malachi 2:16 is just blunt force trauma. I mean, it's just blunt. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And that's God's final word on the matter before Jesus speaks on the topic. Malachi is the the final prophet in the Old Testament, so it's God's final word on the state of marriage. Was the state of marriage good in Israel at the end of of the closing of the Old Testament before Jesus returns? And and. The answer is is no. It's God's final word on the state of marriage and divorce. And he's rebuking his people for their apostasy. And the prolific nature of divorce continued until Jesus' day and, in fact, had had gotten worse. Which is why the Pharisees had the position they did and why the disciples were so shocked at Jesus' teaching on the matter. And so Jesus brings them back to the original intent. And that's the basis of the the Pharisees' argument. It's, It's, if that's what God says then why is there divorce and, and why does Scripture regulate it? They weren't denying that Genesis said what it said. They were taking a passage from the Bible that mentioned divorce, pointing to it as justification for their behavior. They, they were saying, well, there's this passage in the Bible where, where God mentions divorce, so if divorce is wrong, 
Why does God say what he says in Deuteronomy 24? And we would say, and why does Jesus say what he says in Matthew 19? Or in Jeremiah 3, where where God says he gives the northern tribes a, a writ of divorcement. And so Jesus in Mark 10 and in Matthew 19 that we're going to look at today gives a lesson on hermeneutics to the Pharisees, exposes their impenitent hearts. He says it's because of your hardness of hearts that Moses said that. God said that through Moses and also shows them how to interpret their Bibles. And that's exactly what what we want God to do for us. We want him to teach us. We want him to expose our hardened hearts and and show us how to interpret the the scriptures and last time we put this this helpful chart together in summarizing just how God unfolds the major teachings in the Bible on marriage and and divorce in in order God gives his revelation in in progression and and we have to apply that as as we interpret it and we use the example Abraham didn't know the same things that that the apostle Paul knows because they're Revelation time period was was different. So you have creation. Jesus points back to creation. It was creation before the fall. Then you have the fall. And now you have the law, which regulates sin after the fall. It's to regulate the sinfulness of man. That's the Deuteronomy 24 passage. It doesn't approve. It tells you how to how to mitigate sin, how to handle sin, how to deal with sin, where God's living in the presence of, of Israel in a fallen state, before the Messiah comes. Then you have the prophets, which we're going to focus on today. That's Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Malachi, describing events where God applies the law and His intent toward Israel. So it's it's application, it's illustration. God speaks through His prophets, and He applies to all of these things in specific circumstances. So you can go back to those circumstances and sift through and figure out how God's applying it and, and, and why. And then you have the Gospels. Jesus speaking in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, where he's correcting understanding. You have heard, you've been teaching, but I say unto you, this is what God says. And he defines God's original intent. And then, finally, which is where we'll go next week, you have the epistles. You have the final revelation on marriage and and divorce and all of the other things that are there singleness we'll talk about singleness next week and that's in 1st Corinthians 1st Corinthians 7 how do you apply it now that Christ has come and the power of the gospel is reigning in the in the church and Jesus tells the the Pharisees Moses commanded in Genesis pre-fall that comes before Moses' regulation in Deuteronomy 24, after the fall. So while God regulated the reality of the fall in Deuteronomy in order to keep sin from compounding, getting worse, that doesn't represent God's desire, and it's surely not a, a passage to say that God approves of divorce or, or sin. From the beginning, he made them male and, and female and created marriage so that there'd be a single union that God joins and a single pursuit of each other for their whole lives. But because of the hardness of heart, that's the reason for the, the regulation. God was mitigating sin, not a, not approving of it. In fact, Jesus 
shows them that the practice of divorce in Deuteronomy 24 is actually evidence of their sinfulness and depravity, not evidence of God's approval. He reinforces the validity of the divine institution of marriage and then calls for a return to to creation for his followers. That, that single union and single pursuit. And so then Jesus just comes along and he topples the whole thing on on top of the Pharisees and and does that by teaching them how to read their, their Bibles. So it's similar with our issue today. There are volumes written on this, this topic, many positions, volumes, many other volumes on what ifs. And in a fallen world, I think that you just have to recognize why is there so many things written on it. In a fallen world, just things are crooked. I mean, this place is not straight. Sin makes things confusing. Sin is illogical. Think about this. Is it logical for a loving creator to offer salvation full and free to anyone who repent and believe and people reject it and go to hell? Is that logical? That's absolutely illogical. And yet people do that on a, on a regular basis. And sin is part of life under, under the sun. And the only thing that makes sense out of it is to come back and listen to the Creator speak, which is what we're, we're trying to do. So we're going to see how God applies the command from Genesis 2 to Israel through the, through the prophets. And we know His standard and desire for, from creation. Marriage is sacred, honored. God hates divorce, and we also know how he regulates it from the hard hearts of men after the fall. It's to seek to restrain sin. And he does that through mercy and justice, just like in Romans 13. Romans 13, he's ordained the authorities, he's ordained the sword in order to restrain sin, but that law doesn't change hearts. Only Christ can change hearts. And so that's what he's doing in Deuteronomy. But does the Bible, here's the question, does the Bible... Have any events prior to Jesus' statement in Matthew where God applies his intent to specific circumstances in dealing with his people? And the answer is, is yes. And if so, then these things should, should inform us about Jesus' statement in, in Matthew 19 and, and, and 1 Corinthians. In fact, that's exactly what I left off the kingdom there. That's what we're all looking for. God's going to make all things new. In fact, what I just said about looking to how God applies things to Israel in the Old Testament is exactly what the Bible tells us, what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us it's there for. Now, these things happen to them. That's Israel as an example. And they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. We're blessed. We're on this side of Revelation. It's closed. And we have a book to look to. And then that passage immediately then says, no temptation has taken you such which is common in man. God is faithful. So we're all the same. God never changes. His word never changes. Christ is the single answer in the Bible. And what you find in the Old Testament was written for our instruction. It's examples. So the prophets are examples. And there are five, I would consider five major references to marriage and divorce in the prophets. And these are in chronological order. There is the prophet Hosea, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, where God displays his intent toward the marriage covenant. 
There is Isaiah 50, where God confirms his commitment in marriage to Judah. Then there's Jeremiah 3, which we read this morning, where God relents to the violation of marriage to the tribes of Israel. And then there's Ezra 9 and 10, where the people repent of defiled marriages. And then there's Malachi, the final prophet where God rebukes Israel for dishonoring marriage through divorces and with divorces even after they return into the land. I'll say one final thing before we get into it. I know it's a long introduction, but it's important. What's important to remember is that all of these are examples, as 1 Corinthians 10 says. They're descriptive. They don't prescribe anything. They're historical passages. Which means they don't necessarily tell us what to do as much as they record what God did. And then we have to take the rest of the Scripture and to put it into account. That's the problem. That's the issue that the Pentecostals use or Charismatics use with the book of Acts. The book of Acts tells us what happened. It doesn't say go, you know, pray over a hanky and send it to heal people or that there's going to be multiple tongues speaking. It's what happened. It's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's where people get in trouble of running around trying to cast out demons. You're not commanded to do that anywhere in the New Testament. But that is, it's described that this is what happened in the Gospels. But you're not commanded to do that. This is what happened in the Old Testament. But you're not commanded to do this. But it does inform us to help us understand how to apply the passage that, passages that do command us. They show us what was done and give us insight into how God applied and how man misapplied Genesis 2 after the, after the fall. All of these passages happen in a fallen world after creation. None of them change God's design in creation or his hatred for divorce. All are examples where God applies his position to fallen people in a fallen world and does that with mercy and justice. And all being prior to the New Testament, give us insight into what Jesus means when he speaks on the, on the topic. And the first prophet is Hosea. And in Hosea, God displays his intent toward marriage. Now, most of you probably remember or have heard of, the, of Hosea. Israel is described as God's wife over and over in the Old Testament, even though the nation is, is unfaithful. And Hosea was a prophet who was told by God to marry a woman named Gomer, who would start faithful, but like Israel, turn into a harlot. And the Lord uses this relationship to show his intent toward marriage. How will God respond to adultery? How will God respond on his side of the covenant to an unfaithful spouse and an unfaithful Israel. And the New Testament tells us he's faithful even when you're unfaithful to, to the covenant. And God displays loyal love through Hosea for his covenant people in spite of their idolatry. I you to turn to Hosea chapter 3 because here is the climax of the book. I'm going to look at all of Hosea, but Hosea chapter 3.
is the climax of God's pursuit and faithfulness, even to unfaithful Israel. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, it's to Hosea, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and to love raisin cakes. That's the what they participated in idol worship with. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a omer of a half of barley, and I said to her, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod, without household idols. Afterwards, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. Hosea, God's prophet, is, is commanded to do some things that I would not want to do. But he does so in order to give an illustration of how God pursues Israel. How long-suffering is God? How faithful? How does God display his intent, his intent toward the marriage covenant? Hosea goes into the slave market after, after harlotry and prostitution and habitual adultery, and he finds Gomer. When he finds her, he, he brings her back after these years of adultery, He finds her naked and ashamed, being sold off as a prostitute slave, and he embraces her, he takes her back, and treats her as if she was a virgin. That's what it means, you'll not have a man and I'll treat you in the same same way. You want to know how God applies his intent for marriage? How committed is he? I think you you can look to Hosea. There's no other book in the Old Testament that portrays justice and mercy that you find in Exodus 34, I think, than, than Hosea. It's filled with condemnation for Israel's adultery, but his God's portrayal, his side, is loyal, forgiving love that God has for, for his, his people. Now, I think Isaiah 50 is, is probably the next place I go. These are in chronological order, so we're walking through the, through the Old Testament. Hosea to the prophet, to Israel, the northern tribes, Isaiah. Look, if you would, at Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. It's where God confirms his commitment in marriage and calls Israel to that same commitment. He tells Judah in Isaiah 50, calls Judah and says, and says this, Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of divorce by which I've sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions your mother was, was sent away. So God tells Judah, he asks you to a question, he reminds you that I haven't divorced you. Why, why are you running around as a harlot? Why are you committing spiritual adultery? Where is your certificate of divorcement by which I, I sent you, you away? 
And the answer is, you don't have one. So Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom, and God speaks to Judah and says, why are you connected to false gods? Why have I given you a bill of divorce? I have not. So God says, you're my spiritual wife. I'm in covenant with you. And yet, and yet you've left me for another man while I'm still, while you're still my wife. And then he says, it's your transgressions that will separate us. And there's going to be consequences, but it's only going to be temporary. And you know the Babylonian captivity happens and there's, there is a separation between God and, and Judah, but it's, it's only temporary. So I would say if you think of Hosea and you think of Isaiah, there's plenty of other places you go in Isaiah, but I think Isaiah 50 summarizes. So if you take Hosea and you take Isaiah, I would take that as God wooing Israel and Judah to stop their adultery, return to him. It shows his intent from Genesis chapter 2. God pursues. God wants to keep his covenant. God honors marriage. His commitment to marriage is displayed through the prophets, applied in those circumstances. And now we're going to turn the, the other side of the coin. So I want you to think of Jeremiah as the as the result of them refusing. So I want you to turn over to Jeremiah 3. I know this is hard for you. We normally stay in one passage and don't move. Jeremiah 3. We read it this morning. Jeremiah 3 is interesting because... It is God himself applying Deuteronomy 24 to his own relationship. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 24. That's exactly what the Pharisees appealed to. God comes to the place where he applies Deuteronomy 24 to the ten northern tribes, to Israel. He comes to the place where he's had enough. And Jeremiah is where God relents to this violation, this habitual violation of of marriage. And in the passage, in verses 1 through 3, he appeals to Israel, who is immoral. And and Israel wants to keep her relationship with Yahweh and and yet sleep around with other spiritual gods. And so, he appeals to Deuteronomy 24. Look at verse 1. God says, if a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another man... Will he still return to her? Will, will that land not be polluted? I mean, that's the whole point of Deuteronomy 24, not a position, permission to divorce. But it's if you give her a writ of divorcement and she marries somebody else, you can't take her back because it's defiling. She's defiled. And God's applying that to Israel. Deuteronomy 24, Judah's spiritual adultery had defiled the land. And God says, you can't have both. You can't have me, and you can't have your your other gods. Look at what he says at verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. Where have you not been violated? Euphemism. You're going up on the high hills. Where have you? What high hill have you not gone up and, and committed adultery? By the roads, you, you sat for, for them like an Arab in the desert. You're, you're, you're laying in wait for, your, for your, your lovers. They're not seeking you out. You're seeking them out. You polluted the land with your harlotry and your wickedness. Therefore, 
consequences have come. Showers have been withheld. There's no spring rain. Yet you had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. It didn't even bother you. Wasn't even, you didn't have a problem with that. You're still claiming me as your God and claiming them as your God. In verse 4, have you not just now called to me, my, my father, you're the friend of my youth? Will you be angry forever? I mean, it's like pointing back to God's goodness. Will you be indignant to the end? Behold, you've spoken and have done evil things. And they're like pointing back to God, going, what, what's the problem here? I mean, you're, you're a forgiving God. You're not going to be angry, right? You'll take me back. In verses 6, God calls Jeremiah as a witness to the marriage violation. Then the Lord said to me, verse 6, in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen? I think the Hebrew there better is faithless Israel, what faithless Israel did. She went up on every high hill and every under, under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. What did Israel do? She went up on every high hill, every under green tree. She was a harlot there. The high hills are places where idols were worshipped. And look at verse 7. I thought after she had done all these things, she'll return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. And yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. This is the divided kingdom. So two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, ten tribes of, of Israel. He's speaking to the ten, ten tribes of Israel. Saying the ten tribes of Israel, the way that they responded to me, they would not return the writ of divorcement to the ten tribes was to be an example to Judah, who God had not given a writ of divorce to, and never does, by the way. And yet she didn't return. God says after 700 years of unfaithfulness, 700 years of adultery with multiple, multiple gods, I relent and I give you divorce papers. And the Assyrians came and they plundered the northern kingdom and they took away the ten tribes. A number of them migrated to Judah, so the twelve tribes are represented in Judah, so none of, the, none of Israel's lost in history. And I would say so much for looking for any reason to just get out of marriage. God pursued Israel for 700 years while they played the harlot. How long have you put up with your spouse for grumbling or whatever the issue you've got with them or their unfaithfulness? And with Israel, there was continual adultery, unfaithfulness to their true husband, and that caused God to give a bill of divorcement. Now, all of that's really just set up for Matthew 19. We'll cover Ezra and Malachi and see how it applies to 1 Corinthians 7. So we're going to end here, so I want you to turn to Matthew 19. And look at verse 9. This is Jesus speaking. Verse 8, he says, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. 
not God's desire, it's not His design, it's not His intent. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for pornea, immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now here's the exception passage. Now bring all of, all of what we just heard into Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. Jesus is teaching in the Gospels to correct Judaism's misunderstanding, the misapplication, and, and to reestablish God's intent, which is what he does in verse 8. And then in verse 9 is called the exception clause. And Jesus names only one condition, one circumstance where divorce does not cause adultery. I want you to notice that it doesn't command divorce. Divorce does not cause adultery. In this one case, in the, this case, where the marriage bond has already been damaged by one party's infidelity, the person who violates the one flesh bond by joining him or herself to another creates a deformity. Remember, he is joined as one flesh to his wife. And now that indivisible number, that one has been joined, that union has been joined to another person. So one plus one now equals three. It's a, it's a deformity. And divorce, in response, Jesus says, to unrepentant habitual adultery is the only thing that releases one other than death from being guilty of being an adulterer yourself if divorce takes place. And Jesus is echoing what God establishes in the Old Testament by, by practice. So here's my question. Why does adultery break what God has joined together? If there is a physical union, a spiritual union, a, a union of a, a pursuit and mind and physical, and God is the one that joins them, why does this somehow, why somehow is this different and so in order to answer that question, I have, to, I have to define what adultery means. And adultery adds a third party to, to oneness of two people. A third party in a marriage is like a parasite. And a parasite, if it remains, can kill a healthy body or, or, or wreak, wreak habit. It, it creates a deformity. Now I want you to, to, to realize when you, when you think about adultery, adultery is not just sex. Adultery is the joining or cleaving to another person in body, in, in emotion, and spiritually. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Paul said, don't participate in immorality if you're a believer because if you're joined to Christ, if Christ is in you, you join Christ to the prostitute's body. So, so having intimate relations joins your body to another person's body, but it's not simply a physical act. It's like the libertines want you to believe. That's no big deal. Your body's going to perish anyway. It's an act that involves all of you. And if Christ is in you, then you, then, then, then you make him part of that, that wickedness. And adultery joins all of you, not just the physical part. That's why, isn't that why Jesus, what he says in the seventh commandment? When they were saying, well, if I just commit the, as long as I don't commit the physical act of adultery, then I'm not guilty of the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not you know, commit adultery. Jesus says, no, it, it starts in the heart, right? It, the, the law is applied to the, to the heart. It's not just the physical act. It's, it, it goes down to the lust level. It goes down to the, to the desire level. Adultery involves lusting or desiring in your heart that, 
leads to the act of cleaving to another person, which then, of course, typically leads to some form of physical contact. So it starts in the heart, and then it goes to the mind, to the desires, and then it comes into this this physical union of of some kind. So it's not just a a physical act. Not to say that the physical act somehow is not horrific or or bad. It, It is. So when Jesus is saying, accept adultery, accept immorality, he's saying what breaks the covenant bond of the, of the two becoming one is when one party joins themselves physically, emotionally, mentally to a third party, and they're now cleaving to them. So the joining happened by promise, it happened by, by cleaving, it happened by pleasure, and God makes them one and unrelenting adultery undoes that. They're now gluing themselves to another person as they glue their spouse in covenant. They're pressing into them and pressing into oneness. And if that happens, then it breaks the, the oneness that they had with the original union. So the two are no longer one. They're now, they're now three. You can go to all other places. What does pornea mean? When does it apply? And those kind of things. But I think the, the final application is when you have a spouse who has left the covenant and is unrepented, is pursuing someone else in heart, and they're cleaving to them, and they have left you, and they're pressing into that, and that involves a physical act, and they refuse to return If divorce happens in that case, then you are not an adulteress or an adulterer if you remarry. And so apply what Jesus is saying, assumes remarriage, or else there wouldn't be any mention of adultery. And it assumes a commitment of some kind to, to a party other than your spouse. It's a continued pursuit of another person and a rejection of the husband or wife of your covenant. Think about the biblical examples that God gives. Hosea pursued Gomer until he finally recovered her, not at, after the physical act. God in Israel. God pursued, pursued Israel while she played adulteress, but Israel refused to return to God, so he finally gives her divorce papers after 700 years. God never divorced Judah because he made a Davidic promise to her. And so when you're implying the exception clause, it it shouldn't be used as just a way to get out. But as a merciful provision that God has made for a faithful Christian spouse, when the other party is unrepentantly joining themselves to another and continues to do so. And in that case, what has been joined is no longer one. And you can give them a writ of divorcement and not be considered an adulterer if you remarry. That's the summary of the passage. I know there's all kinds of other things. Spiritual abandonment, which we'll talk about next time. There's all kinds of other provisions that God's made for sin, like Romans 13, with what do we do about abuse, or somebody who breaks the law. What about Matthew 18, where you bring about, you bring about the discipline and protection of the church elders if, if they sin and they refuse to repent for something other than what I've just described. And in either case, if they refuse to repent and they do so habitually, then they're declared as a heathen and a publican. But the point is the exception clause is not a get-out-of-marriage card. 
Jesus doesn't change God's design for marriage. He points to the sanctity of what God intended before the fall. He doesn't command divorce. He doesn't even recommend it. He simply says, you're an adulterer if you divorce and remarry for any other reason besides what I just described. So his design and position is clear. He regulates sin out of mercy. And the goal of the teaching was to correct the lax approach to divorce and give the disciples how they're to view their marriage commitment. So, Hosea, heart, desire, design. Isaiah, warning. Jeremiah, divorce informs how we understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19. So how do you apply it? I'd say you follow the example to pursue your your covenant. You remind people of their vows from Isaiah 50. And you do that as long as possible or, or as practical. God did it for 700 years with multiple liaisons. You say, well, I'm not God. So how about doing it for 70 years rather than 700? What about seven years? Most people that I find appealing to the exception clause, a lot of them that are, 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 it's more like seven minutes. And that's probably because your heart's hard. And you're happy to have an excuse to begin with. That's not all of you, but some. Jesus says, if after a Hosea-like heart and pursuit, if the other spouse is not repentant like Israel, they're pursuing another, they're gluing themselves together, then if you divorce and remarry, you've not committed adultery. So that's what I would say, pursue your covenant. If you're an adulterer, and nobody knows, and you've corrupted all of that, you've, you're, the, you're the one who committed it, you broke the promise that you made, you ceased the pressing you do in marriage and pursued another and you you attach yourself to another you divided an indivisible number being one you joined a third party to the two making a numerical deformity then then you should repent and you should do so as long as you should as it is possible to prove your repentance and if you can't prove your repentance and you've already broke the deal to the point that it's beyond repair, then you live in light of that with God's grace and His and His mercy and be used in however way that He would choose to use you. If you're somebody who's joined yourself to a married person, if you're the one who has invaded a marriage... You're a spiritual tapeworm. You're a parasite that feeds off of what is honorable and holy. But you can be changed into a new creation if you'll come to Christ. And you should cease immediately and beg for God's forgiveness and never contact the other person again. And if you're doing that and you think that you're a believer, then you need to read the passages like the one we read in Hebrews 13. Because you're not any more saved than the man in the moon. Complicated stuff. And yet, a clear word.